I think at this point, with two acts of Congress, my hopes and expectations overlay each other. Uh, my expectation is, is that this land exchange will be completed in 2018, at least the structure of the transaction. There probably are, not probably, I'm certain that there will be closing details that the government will have to uh, perform that may go into the first or second quarter of 2019. Mm-hmm. But uh, given the law, given the very clear direction of Congress. Yeah. Um, it was unanimously voted correct. through. So, yeah. Yeah. so I, I think everybody should be on the same page. I yeah. see no reason why that expectation and that those hopes uh, should not be fulfilled. From the studios of Kink Radio, it's the Portland 50, a podcast series about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The Portland 50 series is brought to you by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. I'm your host, Peggy LaPointe. Today, I talk with Matthew Drake, CEO of Mount Hood Meadows. Matthew's father, Franklin Drake, founded Mount Hood Meadows, which opened in January of 1968 with two chairlifts, a T-bar, and two rope toes. There are now 11 lifts and 85 named runs. Mount Hood Meadows is one of only a handful of ski areas in the U.S. that have operated for 50 years under the same ownership and are still privately owned. I was very young at the time, but was uh, sort of his sidekick. And uh, my father and his brothers had built a cabin in government camp in night from 1942 to 44. They were all in engineering school, I believe. And my grandfather bought up piece of land. They built the cabin on it and they were skiing and recreating mostly at Timberline at the time, sometimes at Multiport. Um, and, uh, I grew up skiing at, at Multiport, Ski Bowl, Timberline, those areas, as did my, uh, older sister. And my father, uh, and his brothers, uh, wanted st- steeper terrain. They, they wanted more adventure and, um, they were really enamored. They had ski, all skied in Europe. They were really enamored with, uh, uh, sort of the southeast face, maybe the eastern face of, of Mount Hood and the terrain that it afforded. And um, it so happened that our neighbor right next to us uh, in government camp was a gentleman named Ralph Sadler. Mm-hmm. And Ralph was a retired surveyor uh, for the government. And my father and Ralph uh, set about in uh, the mid-60s, even before this proposal um, was advertised for in the Oregonian, and started looking around uh, for different places to ski. And Ralph knew uh, this side of the mountain, had skied over there, mostly uh, Nordic ski and what have you, and um, uh, really enjoyed the terrain and how pristine and kind of remote it was. Mm-hmm. And then out came the proposal, and my father uh, decided with his uh, brothers that this was a, you know, they should go for it. He put together a very small group of uh, pr- prospective investors, but had a really kind of grand vision to um, make the most of the terrain there because the existing natural terrain was so perfectly suitable to skiing and uh, also suitable for hiking in the summer, which is why the resort's called Mounted Meadows because it's basically a series of tiered wetlands that come down uh, the mountain and uh, go into, you know, obviously wet areas and then further drain into the streams, which then drain into the East Fork of the Hood River and on into the Columbia. Okay. So it definitely wasn't sort of a spur of the moment. He had been sort of 
in the back of his head thinking about the possibility of this area. That, uh, that for sure, and also at the time, you know, Timberline was really a wonderful place, still is a wonderful place to ski, mm-hmm. um, but it would get crowded, you know, from yeah. time to time and, and so forth. And my father just felt that, wow, the state is going to grow and it, and it just people need an opportunity to recreate. And he felt that for himself. And he imparted that to us as, as children, the importance of being outside, the importance of understanding um, the interaction with nature and what it does um, to your soul, um, mm-hmm. uh, almost at a spiritual level. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so that's how he spent his free time. And, and he thought that was very important for us to do that as well. I think that's what draws a lot of people to Oregon. I, I think so, and I, I know for sure it's what draws a lot of our guests uh, to Mounted Meadows on a repeated uh, mm-hmm. basis is, is that they need to have that connection with the out of doors, with nature. It's obviously wild, unpredictable. Uh, Mount Hood is just that way. Many, yeah. many high alpine resorts are that way, but Mount Hood in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, if you don't like the weather here, you just got to wait because <laughs> it's going to change. It will. Yeah. Moving ahead then two years, there's a lot that probably went on in that two years from 66 to 68. But January of 1968, uh, Mount Hood Meadow opens. And that seems like a short amount of time to get two chairlifts, a T-bar, and a couple of rope toes going. Yeah, it was a really uh, compressed time frame because of the weather. It can't, can only build basically, right. you know, sort of July, maybe late June uh, through maybe the middle part of October. And yeah. so um, my father put together a, a team of, of construction professionals, many of whom worked for the Donald M. Drake Company at the time. Mm-hmm. But there was a gentleman named Keith Petrie, who was our first uh, general manager, a guy named John West, who was my first boss, basically. John, I know you're going to be listening, and he lives in Sandy, so big shout out to you. And uh, these are the type of people that, um, yeah, they were paid and so forth, but the paycheck was not what drove them. What drove them was a passion to... Uh, for the mountain and to do this and to be a part of creating something that would be really, really special for our state um, for uh, hopefully for forever. And uh, so they all took that very seriously. And many of them worked seven days a week, Mm -hmm. eight, 10 hours a day and so forth on into the night, sometimes before daybreak, um, overcoming tremendous uh, odds to get it done. Also in the early years, um, uh, building a chairlift with a helicopter um, was not just done all the time. Mm-hmm. And so, cause most of the helicopters in our region were used for logging. Right. And so to fly equipment up that elevation with a huge twin prop uh, helicopter was a big deal. And so that was one of the reasons why we were able to get so much done as we moved a lot of material uh, with helicopters. Since then, when you've built more chairlifts, ha- have you brought things up with helicopters as well? Yes, now it's pretty much a uh, common place to yeah, set I towers, uh, bring equipment up, yeah. uh, drives, bull wheel, housings, yeah. all that stuff to the upper terminals. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we built a chairlift um, last summer, actually replaced the, the uh, buttercup chairlift, and we flew all the towers in one day with a helicopter, and, uh, and uh, actually the next day flew the upper terminal, and we were done. 
It makes sense, but until you've said it, it didn't dawn on me that that's how the items would have gotten up there. Well, there's pieces. another reason for using this is, is that we were, um, and my father in particular was extremely conscious of the sensitivity of the landscape and building roads and, and the destruction that that would occur to the, to the natural setting up there was unacceptable to him and is unacceptable to our company to this day. So when we do these projects, we do it with a zero impact uh, approach and the helicopter is the most surgical way to get at that. Right, it, because otherwise you've had these trucks going up and down these roads and really destroying, yeah. destroying the landscape. We do, you know, there is some there is some uh, degradation of the existing, you know, f- uh, vegetation. And but before we start these projects, we we actually harvest plugs yeah. and we greenhouse them. We bring them along and uh, create basically what we're going to revegetate with using mm-hmm. indigenous uh, native species that came from the specific area that will be disturbing. And we put that back. Um, we put jute matting down. We put that back, and then we irrigate. And usually within two seasons, it looks very close to the w- what we started with. Nice, nice. Yeah. So big opening, 1968. There was an Olympic skier who was there, and I don't recall her Gretchen name. Gretchen Frazier. That's right, Gretchen Frazier. I remember seeing a photo. Yeah. It must have been a pretty big deal back then. You were eight? I was nine. Nine, okay. Yeah. And you remember the big event? Oh, and yes. Yeah, it was oh, yes. probably pretty cool. Yeah, Gretchen and Don Frazier were there. She cut the ribbon. Eric Seiler was our uh, first director of skiing. Uh, he was there. He was... Uh, had been teaching skiing and ran the ski school at Timberline. Um, he's been Lindsey Vaughn's coach for, for many years. He works at a place called Buck Hill. Eric's a wonderful guy. Taught me and my, my older sister how to ski. We'll ski better. We skied a little <laughs> bit um, at the time. But, yeah, it was really an incredible – it was snowing so hard for so long that particular January, January of 68. Um, we wanted to open earlier, but it snowed so much we literally got buried, and also the road wasn't done yet, the access road, and there were problems with the highway and so forth. So, yeah. Yeah. So your dad ran that. Your dad, Franklin, uh, ran Mount Hood Meadows for many years. Uh, 2006, he did retire. He was the last of Oregon and Washington ski resort founders to be still operating uh, in that operating role. Yes, he was. Uh, Did he completely leave construction behind and focus in on uh, Mount Hood Meadows, or did he sort of do both for a while? Yeah, so in in the mid-'90s, we were building the Rose Garden Arena. Yeah. And... and, um, was working on that project, and my father was approached uh, by a, a very large construction company, the J.E. Dunn Company, and um, I think from Kansas City, and uh, they wanted a very strong presence in the Northwest, so they acquired uh, the Donald M. Drake Company, which was incorporated in 1921. Mm. Uh, my grandfather started that company, and uh, the idea was my dad, he wanted to retire, uh, but he wanted to focus on the resort for uh, some time mm-hmm. and focus on uh, his family and his other activities, uh, real estate and so forth that he was involved with. So uh, that's what he did up until 2006. In 2006, he decided that um, he wanted to travel with my mom uh, more, which they did yeah. extensively. And uh, so... He came in one day and said that's what he was doing, and, <laughs> and uh, you're in charge. And so that's how it went down. I had read that he had sort of a su- succession plan that he had put in about two years prior. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he had you know, thought it out quite a, quite a bit. 
in order to make, you know, this place that he helped create continue on for many, many generations. Was it hard for him to finally retire or was it like you, you know, like you sort of implied he was just ready? He was ready to go travel well, and to have less. Okay, he was ready to travel and do that, but he was not ready to let go right. and, and has not let go to this day. <laughs> and so, um, but that's okay because yeah. his input and his knowledge and his, um, he is so attuned to what's going on both in our state and up on the mountain, even though he doesn't go there anymore, that, you know, he asks very informed, penetrating questions that mm-hmm. are thought-provoking for all of us. And so his leadership and his knowledge has um, really guided kind of the direction of the company uh, since that time and, and to this day. We just sort of implement this grand vision that he has. And, uh, you know, from time to time, he'll just call me and say, you know, hey, are you ready for the fire season? And that may be in April. Yeah. And it's still pouring rain here. And it causes me to think, okay, you know, no, we're not. We need to, we need to get ready. Yeah. And so... He still coaches and mentors, but in a, in a, in a, it's a very powerful way, but in a different way. Mm-hmm. What do you think he would, I mean, because a couple of decades, four decades he was involved in it. What would you say throughout those decades were some of the things that he is most proud of as Mount Hood Meadows grew? So um, I think that um, our core values of uh, service uh, to the guests, sustainability for not just uh, financial sustainability, of course, so we can stay in business, but ecological, environmental uh, sustainability is really important. Guest loyalty is very important. That's never to be taken for granted and has to be earned. Mm-hmm. Integrity is, is uh, very important. Wellness is very important, taking care of yourself and so mm-hmm. forth because it's a tough environment to work in. Um, I think innovation uh, is something my father and resourcefulness are something that he always taught because we are, we're completely reliant on our own, I guess, gumption. You know, we're our own utility. Mm-hmm. We're our own water treatment plant. Um, if we need to order something and we can't get it right away, we're going to have to make it. Mm-hmm. So we have fabrication shops. We have an incredible team, very loyal, very capable, very capable of doing lots of different things, mm-hmm. very passionate about what they're doing uh, up in that environment and mm-hmm. very mindful of how important and how special that environment is. Yeah. And uh, I think also early on my father took us, we used to go to Canada as, as kids and stay in tents and yeah. all that. And my father w- would always tell us that, look, you know, um, the Warm Springs have uh, – it's not just their culture, it's their way of life to celebrate and to um, respect the natural environment. And so that's very important to us mm-hmm. because essentially we're stewards of their land, that right. this, all this, this whole mountain is their mountain. And so working with them has taught us, you know, and others has taught us the importance of, of maintaining that stewardship mm-hmm. at, a, at a really high level. Yeah. And being mindful of the environment is not just important because we want to keep it for for future generations. Obviously, it's important because Mount Hood Meadows relies on a healthy environment to thrive 
But it sounds like he came to the table, and, and you've mentioned it a couple of times in describing first the proposal and, and, and the surveying and, and what have you. That was sort of just pretty much part of his fabric. I think he had um, two really important priorities that were higher priorities than those which you're taught as an engineer, which he, which he was. And the first was um, the, the importance of the land and, and what the land can accommodate and, and what you can do with it. Mm-hmm. So finding the fall line and finding the drainages and all that, well, that was very important to him. I think um, equally important were the people. Mm-hmm not just the people that we serve, but particularly our team. And, and he just felt that um, our team members came first, no, no matter what. Yeah. And uh, so those were, the, those were basically the two things that he focused on the most. Yeah. Did he get out skiing quite a bit? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Skied, I skied with my father. Um, I think the last time we actually skied together was um, maybe when he was about 85, I think. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Before 2006, you, you know, you grew up on, on Mount Hood Meadows, but you sort of left for a while. You did some stuff on Wall Street. You worked for your grandfather's construction business for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Um, how long were you doing those things before you eventually went back? Uh, well, let's see. I guess it was about... Um, well, I worked for the construction company from grade school through high school. <laughs> um, carpenter, labor, yeah. you know, whatever. Um, I graduated Lincoln High School in 1977, and um, I went to school in upstate, went to college in upstate New York at Vassar College. Yeah. I graduated from there in 81, uh, went to work on uh, Wall Street until I think it was 1990 and came back. And so I worked from, uh, back for the construction company until 1996, I believe, Mm -hmm. after the company was sold and after the completion of the Rose Garden. And then I left and um, uh, formed a development company and and basically did uh, development for my my family's real estate holdings. It was raw land or some things that needed to be improved or maintained or whatever. Um, and still do that to this day, kind of at night and on the weekends. But in 2006, we had a number of things that we wanted to do at the mountain, and they were really management intensive. And that's another reason my father wanted to step back at the time is yeah. to, as he said, give me an opportunity to either succeed or fall flat on my face, and we'd find out quickly <laughs> which it would be. <laughs> very, very nice, very nice. Subtle, very nice. Very subtle. <laughs> when you when you were uh, graduating from college, you went to Wall Street. Did you imagine eventually coming back to Mount Hood Meadows, or were you thinking a different path at that point? Yeah, I was thinking a different path. I was working for an investment bank, uh, Solomon Brothers at the time. It was kind of an awkward time because um, the CEO of the company had been indicted for I don't think it was insider trading. I think it was some, an SEC violation. It, uh, it shook me. Mm-hmm. I lost confidence in what was going on in the world around me there, and I wanted, to, um, I, I wanted to feel proud of the place that I spent my time and my effort, yeah. and uh, so that was important to me. And so it was at that point 
I had been having these conversations with my father and uh, he'd been reading the, this was in the paper. So Mm -hmm. it was, you know, it was pretty much out there. He shared with me his vision for what he wanted to do with his life. And he wanted to continue with the construction company and wanted me to continue with that. And Mm -hmm. I was okay with that. Um, But then this other opportunity, you know, uh, arose. I mean, life is like a river. You just don't push it. You know, and so the river takes you that way that's that's where you're going i can very much relate to that <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah uh when you came back and when you were doing construction you mentioned the rose garden moda center moda center yeah. yeah fremont bridge okay i i did not see that when i was doing some research but i remember hearing something about the drake organization and the fremont bridge is that right yes that, okay you guys yeah built it essentially. Well, I think that there were multiple parties involved. It was a very large project. I know that, um, I believe my memory serves me correctly that, um, the Donald and Drake company built the West approaches and Anderson Mm -hmm. construction built the East approaches. Mm -hmm. The center span was, um, constructed, I believe by Willamette Western, which was Art Rydell's family business. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember going to that yard and watching the span being created and so forth. And um, I also remember the day that it was floated down the Willamette River. And uh, I was on the bow of the tug with yeah. my dad and Mr. Rydell. And um, we uh, got it into position. And Mr. Rydell called the Bonneville Dam and had him release a ton of water which raised the Willamette and allowed the bridge to be in position where screw jacks could take over, and it was jacked up into place and then bolted. What year was that? Oh, boy. I want to say 71 or 2. Wow. Okay. I'm sure there are historians that will call me out on that. (laughs) That's okay. It's close enough. Yeah. That must have been amazing. It was really amazing because... um, I remember when it got into place and everybody, uh, there was sort of this gasp that uh, it wasn't going to fit. And the river was flowing at higher and higher velocity because more water was being released. And um, all of a sudden it got into place and it fit. Wow. Perfectly. Wow. So years ago I worked at TriMet and when they were um, getting ready for the Tillicum Crossing, there was a certain time of the year where they could put where they could work underwater. Yeah. It had to do with the salmon, the fish. Right. I mean, this is in in twenty twelve, I think twenty twenty ten along those lines. Back in the seventies, was that something also that was on folks' minds that you that you could only do this, or were well, were we not there yet? Okay, so again, my. My memory is a little fuzzy on this, but I believe that NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, didn't come into effect until maybe late 72 or 73 or, okay. or thereabouts. I could be off by a couple of years, but many of those requirements were not in place at that time. Mm-hmm. However, Mr. Rydell had spent his life on the Willamette River running tug and barge you know, operations and so forth, and, and he took the company over from his dad. Mm-hmm. And it was extremely important to him that it was done surgically. And I remember netting all around uh, the footings and the the tower assemblies. Uh, All of his boats were very clean and the decks were very clean. Uh, So it was a very uh, professional job and he had the highest uh, standards and the highest regard for the river, its banks, its ecosystem, and, and so forth. 
you know, it was a very important uh, project that was going to change Portland's skyline for forever. Absolutely. And everybody working on that project took that to heart very seriously. Yeah. That would have been an amazing construction to watch evolve yeah. uh, over time because it's, it is, it, it changes uh, sort of the landscape of Portland and the view of Portland and to see it, A, not be there and then be there. Right. Would have been. And what awesome. it did for the traffic patterns and yeah, so the forth for the, the whole for time. And uh, there was the whole, you may recall them, or maybe you don't, the, the whole notion of the Mount Hood Freeway that yes. was going so to, so to this day, there's a ramp to nowhere over off the Markham oh, Bridge. Yeah. 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 That was to connect uh, ultimately uh, okay. and, and uh, with Highway 212 and, right. and that, that away. And that never, that never came to be. Okay. That came first. The Fremont Bridge came first right. before that. Okay. Good to know. Now, yeah. when I drive over that, I'm going to be looking for that. <laughs> All right, let's get it back to Mount Hood Meadows. Uh, you came back, I think it was 1996, as secretary. Was that right? Well, let's see. I was in the marketing department from 1990. I think I became secretary in maybe 92 or 93, but it was perfunctory only. It was, uh, you know, uh, somebody had to sign documents and, and so forth. And so that was, that was my role. Mm -hmm. I joined the board, I think in 92, um, and, uh, was more involved with the financial aspects of the operation and, and so forth mm -hmm. uh, at that time. And then 2006, when your father, Franklin retired, uh, you were then put in as chief executive officer, and Dave Riley became president and COO. Right. You're listening to Kink's Portland 50 series. I'll continue my conversation with Matthew Drake in a moment, but I wanted to thank our sponsor. The Portland 50 series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company. The legendary Portland institution, serving our community since 1950. Now back to my conversation with Matthew Drake, CEO of Mount Hood Meadows. Matthew's father, Franklin Drake, founded Mount Hood Meadows, which opened in January of 1968 with two chairlifts, a T-bar, and two rope toes. There are now 11 lifts and 85 named runs. Mount Hood Meadows is one of only a handful of ski areas in the U.S. that have operated for 50 years under the same ownership and are still privately owned. As those changes took place, and you're seeing, I think, Mount Hood Meadows now through a different lens, what are you thinking at that point about taking Mount Hood Meadows into the future? Well, I think the um, continuing on with... Um, the two most important priorities that my father had, which was to, to respect the land yeah. and what it can do and what it, what it can carry and what it can't, and respect the people, um, our, our employees, our, our loyal staff, and our guests, you know, to, to continue that forward. And so our core values um, are, are revolve around those two things. Mm -hmm. um, it is true that uh, I think it was in, um, I think in 2000, well, even before that, we were having, I guess, the, the both the benefit of, of increased business levels and then the burden of trying to service more people. And our infrastructure wouldn't accommodate it necessarily. It was taxing our people, taxing the mountain. Mm -hmm. And so we needed to figure out ways to um, accommodate a growing number of folks who want to recreate at Mountain Meadows and, and still maintain our core values. Mm -hmm. And so in 2000, I 
purchased the Cooperspur ski area, which is on the north side of mm-hmm. the mountain uh, on the way down to uh, Hood River. It's off of Highway 35. Mm-hmm. And then a year later, we purchased the inn at Cooper Spur. In 2003, we also did a land exchange with Hood River County where we traded property that we had that was lower elevation for higher elevation property that was more around uh, the Inn at Cooper Spur. And the idea was to um, develop that area into uh, additional lodging, but really focus more on recreation. So it'd be, uh, there'd be skiing, alpine Nordic skiing, snowshoeing uh, in the winter, in the summer, it would be hiking, mm-hmm. um, mountain biking, you know, that types of, those types of recreation activities, along with uh, environmental education that would really span the earth sciences. Mm-hmm. So everything from, you know, hydrology, volcanology, botany, geology, all those things for not just youth, but for all age groups. Yeah. Much like you go to a culinary retreat, mm-hmm. here you can go to an earth sciences retreat because the area is so rich in, in examples. It's like a natural classroom for yeah. those types of things. Now I'm going to start rambling because now we get into the <laughs> storytelling. That no, you I, I wrote notes about that one, okay. about what you're about to talk about. Okay. Okay. So you're, okay. <laughs> well, it's important because it really does answer the question of what was the vision, yeah. you know, at the time. And so I was thinking about all this uh, at the time of how are we going to be able to maintain um, sustainability from an ecological, environmental, and financial perspective, you know, satisfying each of those and be able to carry the business forward so that 2006 comes and I don't fall on my face. Yeah. Which, of course, I think that's a fear that most people have when you step into a role like that. Maybe it was just unique to me, but anyway. (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) But I thought at the time that that was really worth studying. Mm-hmm. And um, Dave, who's a wonderful guy, had a little different vision mm-hmm. um, at the time. And he had envisioned a much larger resort, golf and all that. And that was, that was not my vision. He rolled out a vision, uh, that vision. It was met with huge amounts of um, you know, anxiety, anger, resentment, and so forth by residents in Hood River County, maybe residents throughout the state, mm-hmm. you know. It didn't uh, resonate with me. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm not a golfer. I, I did play golf as a young man, but I, I'm, not, I'm not sure in our setting. Well, I am sure, actually, in our setting up on Mount Hood that at that elevation that golf is the most appropriate use of the landscape, yeah. right? Um, takes up huge amounts of resources. And anyway, we, we feel that a more compact footprint that is more sensitive to the carrying capacity of the land is is the vision where we're going. So that begat discussions with residents of Hood River County uh, to do a land exchange. And because there was land in government camp that the Forest Service and Clackamas County had basically set aside for potential development in government camp. Mm it's actually in the government camp uh, development zone. So it's in their comp plan and so forth, but it was land that was owned by the forest service. And um, I'm not sure that that land had ever been in private ownership. Maybe it had, you know, back when the Barlow trail went through there, I'm I'm not sure. But at any rate, the concept of a land exchange uh, came to fruition. We tried to do it in 2005. It kind of blew up because of perceived inaccuracies in appraisal process and stuff, none of which was true, but it it just kind of blew up. So that begat the need then to have a legislative land exchange. And it took four years to get that passed. It was passed in 2009. 
And Obama signed it, I think, into law in August of 2009. Yeah, and it was called? The Mount Hood mm-hmm. Legacy Act. The Omnibus Public Lands Act? Omnibus Public Lands Act, yeah. but more specifically the Mount Hood Legacy Mount Hood. A- okay. Act. And it essentially was a forest ex- service exchange. Right. You had 770 acres at the Cooper Spur that you mentioned right. to right. trade for... Uh, 120 acres of that Forest Service land. Right, which actually turned out to be 107 acres because the original surveys being so old were inaccurate. And so once we got into it, but at any rate, um, that's that was the gist of it. Yeah. And I believe that piece of legislation required the Forest Service to complete that exchange in 16 months from that date. Um, I think that that was a completely unrealistic expectation given the requirements of NEPA and the requirements of the federal laws that that govern all land exchanges involving the federal government. But nonetheless, the concept of doing this in an expeditious manner was brought to the forefront. Yeah. If, if 16 months was too quick, maybe two years would be adequate or right. two and a half years, but certainly not, you know, five not years. Six and years. Yeah, six years, and now and now uh, here we are. You know, August of 2018, and another piece of legislation called the Mounted Clarification Act was passed in January of this year as a means to overcome what were perceived uh, discrepancies in the original legislation that that maybe were contrary to federal law or Forest Service uh, regulations or so forth. So we are where we are, and I think the agency is doing the best they can to try to advance this. And um, we're now waiting, I think, for the agency to release new instructions to the appraiser that they retained to appraise these properties so that the exchange can move forward. Yeah, and what is your, I know this sounds silly because it's already been much longer than the anticipation of that 16 months or even two years, but what is your hope as far as when this will finally be settled? I think at this point, with two acts of Congress, my hopes and expectations overlay each other. Uh, My expectation is is that this land exchange will be completed in 2018, at least the structure of the transaction. There probably are, not probably, I'm certain that there will be closing details that the government will have to uh, perform that may go into the first or second quarter of 2019. Mm -hmm. But uh, given the law, given the very clear direction of Congress. Yeah. Um, it was unanimously voted correct. through. So, yeah. Yeah. so I, I think everybody should be on the same page. I yeah. see no reason why that expectation and that those hopes uh, should not be fulfilled. Yeah. And what, what are your plans for that area? So for government camp, um, the two parcels there, the zoning is low density residential. So mm-hmm. we would be, uh, which is Clackamas County zoning. Mm-hmm. Uh, both parcels have significant uh, wetlands, uh, streams, buffers, setbacks, steep slopes. Mm-hmm. So lots of detail that are governed from Clackamas County to Division of State Lands to Corps of Engineers. So there's there's a tremendous amount of regulatory overlay that will actually impact and reduce density there. So we'll be very sensitive to that. But the idea is to create a very Oregon uh, experience there that is, um, you know, it's not Sun River, it's not Black Butte, it's it's not Bandon Dunes or whatever, it's Mount Hood. And so I grew up there um, as a young man. I understand what the expectations of the community are. I understand uh, what the expectations of the recreating guest from our region are, and I understand what the com- carrying capacity of the land uh, is. And so 
the team that will be uh, working on this will all um, be cut from the cloth that will be required to address those important attributes of the land, both in government camp and if we do anything at Cooper Spur, it's, it's uncertain whether we'll even have land at Cooper Spur or whatever, however this exchange uh, works out. But the concept is to have a really unique place where families can go and recreate year-round and feel safe, um, know that the, uh, the natural environment has been uh, addressed in a way that is safe, that is sustainable, that is fire tolerant, that, uh, you know, uh, makes the most of the natural landscape as well as the topography. And uh, so those will be really important um, attributes. And I think our investor group is really on board with that because they want to leave behind something that um, will work well in the immediate future, will work 25 years from now, will work 50 years from now, and will work 100 years from now. Yeah. And that, that's a very, uh, that's a different lens to look through real estate development than your standard you know, real estate development of go in, optimize the property and build, 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 and so forth. We have to take a way more measured, um, studied, almost scientific approach that also meets the needs of recreating families. Yeah. And being mindful of the environment because it's such a unique climate, you know, obviously being up on the mountain, uh, but you, you know, you've got the snow in the winter, the fire season in the summer. Right. Um, and what works best for that the area. Rain, the rainy season. The rainy the, season, yeah, right. Yeah. What works best for that doesn't work best for other parts of the state. Right. Mount Hood Meadows, let's see, 50 years. Started off lots of skiers. Over that time. Actually, we started off with very few skiers. Well, <laughs> what I mean is <laughs> uh, skiing. It, it's a ski resort and not, yeah. uh, you know, snowboarding wasn't a big deal. Yeah. Uh, when snowboarding started to come in to the picture and overtake skiing in popularity, how does that change what you do at Mount Hood Meadows? Well, I guess a quick story on that. I think in 1973 or four, I um, brought a snowboard into the office. It was actually called a snurfer at the time. Jake, <laughs> Jake Burton, Jake Carpenter, Jake Burton Carpenter had invented this thing. We got, my cousin actually got one and um, he was snowboarding basically on uh, the progress golf course in the wintertime. And we were pulling him running on the snow <laughs> and it was kind of crazy. But I brought it in and showed it to my dad and I said, you know, I got to tell you, I think this is going to be the future of skiing. And my father said, you know, get that out of here. You're crazy. <laughs> That's the weirdest looking thing I've ever seen. Anyway, you fast forward, you know, just a few short years after that. And we were doing, you know, a lot of uh, visits were, were snowboarders. Mm -hmm. And I think what it did is it, um, it really helped to um, encourage more outdoor activity in the wintertime, particularly from youth. There were some really great events. Mounted Meadows was an early pioneer of snowboarding, of snowboard events, uh, big air events, you know, and all that. Uh, and it just really helped, I think, fuel use, fuel visitation, fuel our company's growth and, and so forth, and really embrace all that. From an operational perspective, it brought also with it complexities associated with you know, snowboarding, having a blind side, depending on if you're goofy or regular or whatever, and the whole dynamic interacting with skiers. And um, 
we chose early on to adopt an educational approach rather than an enforcement approach um, to try to teach both skiers and riders how to enjoy the natural terrain um, together mm-hmm. and realize that, okay, you know, collisions and, and accidents, are they're going to happen if you don't pay attention. And so with that educational effort goes on, you know, to this day. Um, we've seen recently in the probably the past five to seven seasons, snowboarding maybe plateau, if not even taper off, and now skiing uh, rise again, mostly because of new equipment and mm-hmm. and the next generation of, of skiers coming forth. But snowboarding is still very popular and uh, it's still super fun. And that's a great way to, like, particularly on a, on a powder day or whatever, surfing on a uh, surfing powder snow on a snowboard is addicting. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> the, the grooming, does it change how you groom the area uh, as snowbo- snowboarding became more popular? Um, it changes. It, what, well, I don't think snowboarding drove this. I think that our guests and their requirements um, have driven this, that we used to, when I was younger, um, we used to groom, well, we groomed as much as we could, but we had a very small fleet and we'd maybe groom, you know, I don't know, 20 to 30% of our runs, you know, every night. Um, now we're grooming, you know, 85 to 90% of our runs every night. Wow. And um, and wall to wall, that means tree line to tree line, and we have an extensive fleet uh, to do that. The grooming is really an important uh, priority for our company. Um, we ha- we spend a tremendous amount of resources and and time training our operators and our groomers. Our freestyle terrain, we have parks, we have five parks, freestyle terrain, um, half pipe. So there's a lot of grooming that we have to do for those features, mm-hmm. and. You know, snow removal and just snow management is a huge aspect of what we do because we can get, you know, big, big time snowfall. So we're constantly working the snow um, to provide the finished product that the guest experiences by 855 every day. And that typically starts as soon as we close. So 930 every night, um, midnight on weekends, some weekends and holidays. Uh, The team is out there. We work two shifts, swing and grave. And, uh, it's a it's a big operation. It's 24-7. We don't operate equipment uh, anywhere when public is on the hill for right. safety reasons, right. ever. And um, sometimes a ski-do will need to, need to do a rescue or whatever for a patrol incident, but uh, it's really important that we not have um, potential conflicts between equipment and staff or equipment and guests. But essentially, there's something going on 24-7 up at Mount Hood Meadows. Yeah, and, and actually, like every summer, we do lots of uh, rock removal, stump grinding. Sometimes we have to cut back the willows if they grow up so, so that the slope, the, the skiing surface, uh, we can open with less snow. But most importantly, when we're running the equipment over, there is no interference with anything that's subsurface. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to sort of the sustainability aspect couple of things up there. You've got a number of lead certified structures. Chairlifts run on wind energy. I didn't realize that, but it makes perfect sense. You've got your annual native wildflower revegetation effort called Vegetate. Right. Tell me about that. That sounds fun. Vegetate is a great thing. So we collect seeds yeah. uh, every year. Um, we bring them down valley. We propagate those. Um, and then we bring back the plugs, basically a slightly more mature seedling. And we plant those throughout the uh, permit area mm-hmm. to continue to not so much. Uh, w- this is not a re because we don't have too many scarred areas anymore. 
that those that we do, we're working on. But this is actually to enhance um, not, not only the wetland areas, but upland areas and so forth, where indigenous native vegetation could use a hand, you mm-hmm. know, from, from us to enhance it. Um, and, you know, we're seeing summer, summers are warmer, summers are longer, winters more volatile. So maintaining the natural landscape up there is actually really important from a horticultural, botanical approach, but also from an erosion control uh, approach. And that was my next sort of question is, what has climate change done to your planning for each season? How you, you know, have you thought about climate change and and how Mount Hood Meadows goes forward, how you adapt? Yeah, I think that um, the land exchange speaks to that by having, you know, these different parcels and different uses. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, every, almost every day in the non-winter months, we have guests Mm -hmm. coming to the permit area to hike and to, and to see the wildflowers, see the streams, see the wetlands, understand, you know, and just not only understand the natural environment, but have that connection uh, with the environment. And, you know, I know it's super smoky up there right now, so it's not really great to, to do that. But on clear days, when there is no fire smoke or whatever for coming from around us, it's spectacular at Mountain Meadows. And it's a much different experience than on the west side of the mountain. It's just different topography, different... Um, a different vegetation, uh, different, uh, completely different botanical setup. Mm-hmm. As you go, you know, from the alpine, the, the super alpine, the alpine, the subalpine, and then down to the high desert vegetation, in 35, 40 miles, there are four to five different zones uh, <laughs> that you can experience, which is kind of unique, mm-hmm. you know, very unique. Um, and so uh, we think that ultimately, I'm, I'm hoping in my lifetime, that summer visitation will be just as high as winter visitation. Mm-hmm. Winter of this year, 2018, 2019, what are you hearing about snowfall? What, what's the forecast? Well, it's, I guess the jury is still out. There's um, a school out there that thinks that we're going to have a La Nina event. Another school thinks we're going to have an El Nino I mean. I'm not quite sure until we get closer where those predictions um, fall. Mm-hmm. One thing that we know is we will have weather <laughs> one way or another. Yes. And so, yeah, we watch the forecasts and we listen carefully to those, but we manage the business uh, very conservatively. So, you know, the weather is in our region is a little bit like a box of chocolates. Every morning you wake up and you get what you get. You get what you get. And you got to adapt. <laughs> and you got to adapt. The, isn't that the truth? Yeah. And it changes, you know, particularly on Mount Hood, particularly uh, at our elevation, it changes so quickly, yeah. you know, uh, even with a forecast, the forecast can be wrong. Wind can come in. All of a sudden you've got freezing rain, then snow, then ice, and then bluebird, and, all, and it's all happening within maybe a one to two hour uh, time frame. I was going to say 24 hours, but you're... <laughs> You're more accurate. Well, it can happen, you know, that quickly. Yeah. And uh, so that that brings about operational considerations. It certainly brings about safety considerations mm-hmm. for staff and guests and, and so forth. And so we constantly monitor that. Yeah. And, um, and then knitted in with that, of course, is the wellness core value because while you're managing all that, You've got to stay fit. You've got to hydrate. You've got to make sure your your proper nutrition, um, that your body's feeling good, and all that, uh, because it can sneak up on you. Mm-hmm. The the conditions, the environment uh, on Mount Hood can be punishing yeah. if you're not prepared. Now I want to ask you, what's your favorite run? 
Um, well, many years ago, we installed uh, the um, Vista chairlift, and there's a runoff there called Mai Tai that is named after my oldest daughter, uh, Tyler. And so yeah. I've always loved that. Even when she was really little, um, we used to, she used to scream uh, when we skied down <laughs> that, and that was always super fun. But as a, as a, as a younger guy, um, and again, I skied with lots of really great skiers, uh, there's a run called Ridge Run, which takes you down a certain amount of the way to Tubal. And Tubal takes you down below the blue chair. And we had a downhill set up there once because it is probably um, this, the most natural, steepest fall line that I can think of up on Mount Hood until you get to a place called A-Zone, which is above the Texas chairlift. It's the highest reach of our permit area. It drops down into Heather Canyon. And on a good day, that's where you'll find me because mm-hmm. I like to hike up there and ski that terrain. It's very uh, constant uh, pitch, it's steep, it's long. When the snow conditions are right, late season, the corn snow is really beautiful up there. Uh, after a, a snow cycle, the powder skiing up there is incredible. Even the wind crust uh, up there can be enjoyable to ski on. But I have found very few places uh, maybe some places up in Canada, you know, rival that type of terrain where it's really constant pitch, super long, mm-hmm. car- carve a lot of turns uh, that rival that, you know, experience that are at a resort. I love the train at Jackson. love the train, you know, at, at Vail, Crested Butte, Steamboat, you know, all those places have incredible terrain and incredible runs. The side country experience at Mounted Meadows is um, is really unique. and It's hard to find that just everywhere. It was fun listening to you describe that because you can see it through uh, through your eyes now and you must know that area like the back of your hand I do but I also respect that area um, we have a you know we have a very we're a class A avalanche zone resort yeah. and so we take that terrain um, really seriously it, it is prone to heavy snow accumulation and avalanche and multiple layers and so forth so respecting that area is is really important but it is true you know, I think that, um, I, I don't know, the, uh, Warren Miller had so many great uh, adjectives and sayings to, ex- to express what skiing like that is like. And I, I think the word freedom is the one that resonates with me the most. I, I would have to agree. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Matthew, for coming in today. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining me for my conversation with Matthew Drake. If you've missed any of the previous podcasts, you can find them at our website at kink.fm. Be sure to like and subscribe to the Portland 50 podcast wherever you're listening. The Portland 50 is a podcast series celebrating King's 50th anniversary, and it's about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland, one company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company the legendary Portland institution, serving our community since 1950.